So today we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, which has been a lot of fun. We are actually in chapter 13, uh, and so we're going to be spending uh, at least two weeks there, maybe more. But uh, so chapter 13 in the in the in the book of Matthew is uh, is known as the, the parables of the kingdom, or the kingdom parables, where Jesus just starts uh, he just starts rattling off parable after parable. Uh, seven in total about the subject of the kingdom of God. And so uh, famously, the first one, which Robert Capon calls the watershed of all the parables, uh, is the parable of the sower. And uh, we are going to talk about the parable of the sower next week. Um, but I can't, I, I, I try to fit this all in one message and I couldn't. Uh, Jesus gives this important explanation to his disciples uh, about why he is speaking in parables. Because he, he shares this parable. As the scene goes, uh, the Bible says that he, he leaves a house. And, uh, and most historians believe this is probably the house of, uh, of Peter in Capernaum, uh, which is kind of like the home base where Jesus, his operations there. But he leaves a house and he goes to the beach. And uh, maybe he's just looking for just a little quiet time on the beach, as we all do. And, uh, and I don't know if you've ever planned a beach vacation in your mind. You're the only one on the beach. And then you get there, and everybody in the world is on that beach. And you're looking for like four feet of sand just to, just to kind of put your little chair and read your book. But uh, Jesus goes to the beach, and he is, um, he is crowded by all these people who are like, I heard Jesus left the house. Let's go find him. And so they're just just, just completely uh, swarming him on the beach. And so, uh, so Jesus actually tells this parable of the sower. And so, uh, and then his disciples, they were like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. That was like really cryptic and uh, I have no idea what it means. Uh, we spent a lot, a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount, weeks and weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, appropriate because it's such a powerful sermon. Uh, and, and in that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spends time giving his authoritative interpretation of the law. And, uh, and so it's very clear and very direct. And, uh, and, and, he, and he puts out that the standard expectation of the law, and he establishes it back to where it belongs. This is the perfect law of a perfect God. And so uh, he's very clear very concise, very mathematic. And, uh, and then he starts this communication style that is completely different, and it's story time with Jesus. And so Jesus goes from being this very clear, deliberate presenter to uh, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> he, I, I can imagine he changed the sandals and put on a cardigan. Um, but this is uh, a, a, there's a lot of room in these stories and the parables of Jesus, obviously, because everyone, a lot of people interpret them differently, but uh, there's a lot of room for ambiguity. Whereas the Sermon on the Mount, there's not a lot of room for ambiguity. I mean, he's pretty direct. I mean, he, he, even, he even takes away the ambiguity. He's like, oh, uh, you've never murdered anyone. That's great, but have you ever been mad at somebody? So he gets so specific. And so this is a completely, a, a, a total shift in his presentation style. But I think the story time with Jesus idea is, is actually, there's something to that. Uh, one of my, the heroes of the faith for me, uh, one of my favorite authors 
is Brennan Manning, who I love. I just I think the Ragamuffin Gospel should be required reading for all believers. And and uh, he had a he had a conversation where he talked about specifically the Lord's Prayer, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And and what he really fixated on was the statement, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father. And and the way that's said is Abba, Daddy. So it's an affectionate, endearing term for one's dad. And and that's the way that Jesus teaches us to pray is, is come to him like a child. And, and so that's the picture that Jesus himself paints, even in our relationship with God through prayer. And so uh, it, it is not a, it's not a business transaction. It's not going to the boardroom to talk to the chairman of the board. It's not, it's not a business meeting. It's, it's running to your father like a child. Um, I remember as a, as a kid, uh, my dad was uh, incredibly gifted in telling a story, which he told all the time. And uh, he was super animated with it. And, uh, and it was the three little pigs. And, uh, and so I remember I would, I would just, I would, it was a request night all the time. I was like, Dad, can you, yeah, I, know, I know how the story goes, but I want to hear it again. And so he would tell the story. And then at some point when it's huff and puff and blow the house down, he did this uh, huff and puff. And, and he, he turned into like Dizzy Gillespie with his cheeks. Uh, it was a, it was amazing and, and very very uh, gregarious and, and colorful story and and I loved it and and it was a special time it was kind of a time of bonding and and connection and I think that's the power I loved reading with my daughter as as a, as when she was a, a little bitty thing uh, and and so uh, I want to say that my reading to her is what uh, ignited her love for reading because that's how good I am as a father. And so, um, but I, I would have to read two books and, and my daughter would pick out the two books and she said, read this one right and read this one funny. And so I would, uh, I would read one verbatim and then improv and make up the story for the other one. And so she always kept my comedy skills refined. And so, uh, I loved it. It was a bonding time and everyone knows that you, you bond, during stories. It's a way we connect with each other. Uh, but this audience, at this time in history, when Jesus was doing this, uh, children were seen as in the way or lesser than. And so uh, adults were are treated with some amount of dignity. Children, you didn't want to see them or hear them. And, uh, and so, in fact, there was almost, you can see in culturally, there was a rush for them to grow up, like grow up already, get a job. I'm six, get a job. And so uh, adults, his, historically, are the more serious uh, because we have more responsibility. We have things to do, places to go. Children are just vagrants. They are squatters in our home. They, they, they have no responsibilities. Uh, they have no place to go unless we make them go somewhere. Uh, they, they, they don't really have the same kind of burden. And you look at them almost. I, have you ever had a conversation with someone younger than you the, in high school or college? And they're like, man, life is hard in math class. And I don't know how to cut my hair this time. And, and you're just like looking at them like, kid, it doesn't get better than this. Just, just enjoy these moments because your life is going to get so much harder. And so uh, I think that's part of the reason why Jesus is almost re- 
regressing us to a childlike state. Uh, because life becomes mathematical. Everything's a math equation. Give me the rules. Give me, give me the checklist and just let me go. Let me be autonomous. Let me just make my own way. And here is this beautiful uh, communication style where Jesus is drawing us in. And, and we're, 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 he's leveraging the power of the subjective perspective. Where we can't just compartmentalize and, and, and make it all cerebral. We're engaged with a story. We're feeling it. We're putting ourselves in it. It's beautiful. So Jesus forces us through this communication style to, to lean in, to engage with him. And in these stories, we're encouraged to drop our togetherness, drop the fact that we figured everything out, drop the notions that, that, we, we, uh, that we've got this thing on lockdown and we, we know what we're doing and just approach him like children. And so that's what he's doing. And so these people gather at a beach and uh, it's story time with Jesus. And so they're excited to hear the story. So he, he tells the story, the, the, uh, the parable of the sower. And we know that. We'll, uh, again, we'll get into that parable next week, into the details of it. But, but I want to fast forward to Matthew 13, verse 10. And, and this is his disciples pulling him aside afterwards. And I'm sure while he's telling the parable of the sower, he's like, they're, they're being good represent, representatives of, uh, of Jesus. And like, yeah, amen. Preach it, brother. Yep, yep, bring it up. But the stony ground, there it is. You listening to that? And then afterward, after, after it's done, they're like, I have no idea what you just said. That made no sense. Where's the subtitles? I, I have no idea what you were saying. And so they asked him, why are you speaking in parables? Why are you concealing your message? And so this is Matthew 13, verse 10 through 17. This is his response. This, the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And then Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, ha, whoever has to him more shall, will, will be given, and he will, be having a, he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I will heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, hear what you hear and did not hear it. Uh, I, I think it's pretty natural to assume that Jesus uses parables as object lessons uh, like we did this morning. And so these are a way that he, um, he illustrates his sermon. And, and maybe makes it more clear. It says, you, you didn't really understand what I said, but let me use this object lesson to make it more clear. And, all, and so ultimately to, to reveal his point. But that is actually the opposite of the reason why he, he get, the reason he gives why he shares parables. He doesn't share parables to reveal, but to conceal. And this seems counterproductive. And he, he makes a statement. He even quotes Isaiah. He says, you'll keep hearing, but you're not going to understand. You'll keep seeing. You'll not perceive. It's an interesting plot twist. 
that, that Jesus is changing his communication style to, to one that where he's basically hiding Easter eggs for us to go find. Not to reveal, but to conceal. He's engaging us in this divine game of hide-and-go-seek. He's like, you're going to have to actually search. You're going to have to look. You're going to have to dig. You're going to have to ultimately engage the author. And I think that's the point. In order to understand the meaning, you're going to have to come to the one who's saying it. You have to engage me. I've, I've, I've made this comparison before, but I, I feel like parables are works of art. And you learn more about these works of art when you learn about the artist, the one who created it, the one who wrote it, the one who painted it. So when the disciples ask him directly, what are you talking about? Why do you talk like this? What, what's, what's up? What are you, the Riddler? What are you doing? And he makes a statement. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. So let me, let me paraphrase that. And, and, and we'll get a little bit more um, behind the scenes of how this conversation goes. Jesus says to them, you, you know. You guys already know. You know what I'm talking about. And they're like, and they're looking at each other like, do you? I don't have a clue. So he just matter of factly he says, these people, they don't have a clue. They don't know what I'm saying, but you guys, you guys get it. I mean, you guys get it. He says, you, you know. To you has been granted to know the mysteries of the universe. You, you know everything. You know. Did they actually understand what he was saying? No, they, they didn't because they asked. And then they continue later on. He shares the story of the tears and the wheat. And he's like, I don't know what you're saying. I don't get it. What did they know that he saw that they knew that they did not know that they knew? He saw that they knew something that they didn't know that they knew. But he, he knew that they knew it. And they, he said they knew it, but they didn't know that they knew it. They had no idea that they knew what they knew. This is just as perplexing <laughs> as the parables. I think that's in, within that revelation. What do they know? That's, that's where we find out why parables. They had something. They were on to something. Whoever has, to him more will be given. And that person will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. I've, I've heard that read. I've read it myself. And I've, I, I, I've come to this conclusion reading it. That's not fair. That sounds awful. Because you read that and you're like, okay, the people that have, you're going to give them more. And the have-nots, the people that are lacking, you're going to, what the little bit they have... You're going to take that away. So if we, if we uh, take that theme and put it on a, a literary classic, the Christmas story, or the, I'm sorry, the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. So according to what Jesus said, um, Bob Cratchit, you go to his house and you... He's got the little, if you watch the Mickey's Christmas Carol, they're cutting the pea in, you know, into, into slices so everybody can eat. You take the pea and you put it in a bag. You're like, all right, see you guys. 
and then you, you go to Scrooge McDuck's house and you, you give him more. Mm, I don't like that story. So is this God being unfair or is there more to that statement? If you have, have what? Whoever has, has what? Jesus. Whoever has Jesus has everything. In fact, it's through the lens of Christ that we gain, see, acquire, secure everything. And if you don't have Jesus, even those things that you think you have, you don't have. They're not yours. We walk into this world empty-handed, we'll walk out empty-handed. What do the guys have that no one else has? What do they know that no one else knows? They have Jesus. They are in relationship, in communion with Jesus. They are having daily revelations of who this person is. And they continue. When, when, uh, when, when they, uh, Peter walks on the water, they, they, or I'm sorry, when, when they, he calms the storm when they're in the boat, they say, what kind of man can do this? Who is this? And they start having these questions and these thoughts and these, these things answered in their hearts. Uh, later on, when, when, when Jesus says, uh, who do people say that I am? Peter says, I, 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 you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. They're getting it. It's, the lights are coming on. And that's what they have. And because they have that, they have everything. And those who don't have that, they have nothing. Even the very self-assured, very self-confident people that think they know everything, have everything, are successful and are even higher and above other people, if they don't have Jesus, they've got nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, is uh, an interesting juxtaposition. It says this, knowledge on one side of the equation makes arrogant. It, another translation says it, it puffs up. On the other side of the equation, but love builds up. It edifies. So these two things are put on opposite ends of the spectrum, which is interesting. Because Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And so you, you get this throughout the text. And so it is... Uh, the side of knowledge, information, understanding is it, personal uh, human enlightenment versus something that is deeper and far more profound and actually far more helpful as far as humanity is concerned and as love. One translation says, knowledge makes one feel important, but it's love that actually builds. It goes on to say this, if anyone supposes that they know anything, they have not yet known as they ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. If anyone th thinks that they know anything, now that's a specific knowing. That is knowledge that is uh, human enlightenment. It is outside of a revelation of Christ because he's, the, the, Paul's painting a picture here. On the other side of the equation is if someone loves God, has a relationship with God, 
That person is more important than knowing is known. And that's where true knowledge and wisdom begins. Being known. Being in relationship with. Being connected to. The head. Being in communion with Christ. That's where true knowledge and wisdom happens. But on the other side is just this search for autonomy and personal enlightenment to become the smartest person in the room. To be the know-it-all. The, po- the parable of the sower kicks off seven parables that uh, deal with the kingdom of God. How the kingdom of God works. Uh, I, I love this, this description. This is Robert Capon wrote a lot about, uh, he's one of my favorite authors, wrote a lot about um, the, the parables. Uh, has, there's actually three books and they put it into one. It has one of my favorite books on the subject uh, in the world. And, so, and part of that, he talks about the parables of the kingdom. And so this is a quote from that book. And uh, he speaks directly to the subject matter. For Jesus, the meaning of God's kingdom is a radical mystery, even as he tells people about it. It remains permanently intractable to all attempts to fully grasp it. Jesus did not use the parables to explain everything to people's satisfaction, but rather to call into question people's previous understandings. In other words, The parables are trying to upset people's existing ideas as well as providing them with new ones. They're not meant to pop. They're they're meant to pop every circuit breaker in people's minds. After all our yammer and opinions about how God should or shouldn't run the world, getting people just to stand there with their eyes wide open and their mouths shut would be a giant step forward. This is what Jesus's parables are designed to do. I could not say it better myself. Yes, to leave you gobsmacked, to leave you overwhelmed. In this world, we gather information and we gather these tools and these possessions and we, these life principles and, and these personal accolades and we, we start collecting them. It's this emporium of all, we start curating a life of togetherness and like, look what I've done. This is what I know. This is what I'm sure about. This is what I argue about from that place. I, 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 will, I will yell at people who disagree with me because I'm enlightened and I know. And what these stories are meant to do is basically repossess all those idols. Knock them out of our hands. And bring us to this beautiful revelation of you don't know anything. The things you know, you don't know. This is one of the, this is the threshold where the rubber meets the road and life changes for humanity. And this is, it is the toughest, this is the narrow gate, right? Admitting and acknowledging that I don't know. It is so difficult to do. To admit and acknowledge that I'm not right. In and of myself, I'm not right. There's one thing that makes me right, and it's not my opinion. It's not my perspective. It's not my experience. One, thing's, one thing makes me right, and that is the one who is right. I am in him, 
he is in me. Therefore, any rightness I experience is not rightness that I've earned or secured on my own. It's rightness that is imputed to me by the one who is right. Jesus is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. He's not an example of those things. He's not an encouragement to try to discover and become these things. He is these things. There's no way to the Father but through the Son. You can't cleverly figure out a way to path to, to draw a path to God to arrive at a destination of well done, good and faithful. There is only one way. And it, and it is proof positive that Christ is necessary and Christ is only. That's why he says to the disciples, you, you have something going on. You know. You get it. Because you have me. Contrary to very popular opinion, I don't believe that the parables are given primarily as life lessons. I don't believe that, that parables are given primarily to enlighten, to enlighten or inform the reader. These are primarily used. They're, human, they're stories of human experiences used to subtly and effectively disarm humanism. Self, self-centeredness. Self-righteousness. To snip the red wire on my self-salvation projects. They're subtly used to disarm me and prove I'm not self-sufficient, I'm not autonomous, and I don't have all that I need in and of myself. At the same time, he's drawing us in. Primarily, parables are used to draw us to the reader, to the, to the author. Primarily, they're meant to bring us to the source, to the storyteller, to the artist, who happens to be the author and the perfecter of our faith. So in order, we read these parables and we're like, okay, I don't, I don't get it. And I want to get it. What are you trying to say to me? Then, then we're forced to go to the author and say, what are you saying to me? It's not take it and figure it out on your own. It's go to him. Seek first him, his righteousness. He'll work it all out. He will begin to open our eyes. He will give us eyes to see, ears to hear. He will, he will give us revelation that is only through the Holy Spirit. You can't know what he doesn't tell you. See, the law is just facts and figures. It's mathematic. Here you go. Check boxes. And we thought and continue to think, just give me the rules of the game and I'll play it right and I'll do good. And then the Bible tells us the law, here's another plot twist, the law wasn't given to squelch sin, it was given that sin might increase to show us that our own self-salvation projects are doomed from the start. It didn't work. So all of Scripture, I love that one of my, the, the best children's Bible out there is, is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It is beautiful. It's written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And in the intro, she talks about kind of what's about to happen and, and throughout the text. 
And she has this wonderful quote. She says, every story whispers his name. This whole book is not facts and figures. It's not mathematic. It is, it is meant to bring us to the Savior. I love John chapter 5. Jesus says this himself in verse 39. Hey, you search these scriptures because you think that in them, in, in the checklist, in the principles, in, in the suggestions, you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is all of these that testify about me. On the Emmaus Road, the Bible says that he talked to these followers of his. He started pointing himself out in all of Scripture. That would have been in the Old Testament. And he's saying, guys, this is, this is what, this whole thing is pointing you to me. That's the point. It's not to live a successful Christian life on your own. It's meant to draw us in to him, to bring us to the Father, to bring us to the one way, truth in life. Every story whispers his name. I'll I'll end with this. Um, This is something that hit me like a ton of bricks this week in preparing for this. Um, Jesus began this, this beautiful presentation style of storytelling, writing a story, but really the whole Bible is stories. And if you look at them closely, you, you realize they're, they're human experiences that are meant to show us something spiritual. The word parable is a Greek word. It, it means comparison, to compare, to draw a comparison, to juxtapose, to say here's a human experience that you might be familiar with, and then here's a spiritual principle that you're getting a glimpse of. If you read the story of David, it's a beautiful story. You're like, man, David's a hero. How incredible is that? But then you realize the story of David's not about David. The story of David is about Jesus. You read the story about Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. You're like, man, this is a cool little story. And man, Dolly Parton should do something with this. And then you realize this isn't about Joe. Joe's just a guy. This is about Jesus. Moses who's the hero of the Jewish people. He was the deliverer. The whole story of Moses, he was just a random guy with a speech impediment. It's like, he's not the, he's not the significance. The story points to Jesus, our true deliverer. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Moses. He's the true and better David. He is, he is the point. These stories, all of them, they whisper his name. They point us to Jesus. And, and here's where I want to end. He's not done writing these stories. In fact, as random and as simple as we think that our lives are, he's writing parables with you. You are a human experience happening before people's very eyes that is meant to draw comparison to Jesus. You are a parable. My life is a parable. And then we start looking at things and we're like, man, this didn't go according to plan. I had a great uh, lunch last week with a friend. 
And, and I said, I made this statement. I said, somewhere along the way, as we change careers and move houses and do all kinds of things to try to alleviate tension and pressure from our lives, somewhere in the back of our mind, we've been sold a bill of goods that if you're doing life right, there will be no more stress. If you're doing life right, if you're actually succeeding, if you are where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to do, when you finally found that, that magic spot, then pain and stress and sadness and tension and pressure will alleviate. There is no such thing. In fact, I would say maybe the opposite's true. When it feels the most tense, maybe you're smack dab where he wants you. Why would I say that? Because good stories have tension. No one wants to see a movie where everything just happens perfectly. We want tension. We need tension. It makes it an interesting story. And it points out the redemption of humanity that we desperately need, that this isn't all tulips and daisies. This is tough. In this world, you have trouble. And, but Jesus has come to secure salvation. He's overcome the world for us. So even through the tough stuff, Jesus is working it out for our good, and not only our good, but actually as an example, as a parable of his goodness. One last verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Uh, This is in the message translation, such a beautiful statement. The word has gotten out, it's gotten around. Your lives are echoing the master's word Not only in the provinces, but all over the place. The news of your faith in God is out. We don't even have to say anything anymore. You're the message. I I love that. But if you're like me, there's some pressure in that to say. uh, I've heard people say it a lot growing up. You want to do the right thing. First of all, because it's right to do right, but do the right thing because somebody's watching and their, their salvation is hanging in the balance based on your performance. That pressure was, is never yours. That is not our, our calling. In fact, I would say the opposite is true. David was a human being used as a a precursor, an example of Jesus. But we all know how the story of David went. The wheels fell off. Abraham, the father of our faith, rarely ever had any faith. There were so many beautiful stories about Samson, strongest guy who's ever lived. Man, how impressive was he? Went off the rails. Solomon, wisest, Richest man who's ever lived, a picture of success, human success, died far from faith. Jesus shows up the brightest in our weakness. He shows up the boldest in our shortcomings. So our life as parables is not trying to show people a template of success. In fact, I would say it's to show God's grace through failure. Here's the revelation that will change our lives and cause us to embrace our calling to allow God to write stories with our life is when we realize because Jesus is successful for us, we're free to fail. 
because Christ had it all together as a human being, we're free to, to be a mess. Because Jesus triumphed, we're free to fail. Because Jesus is perfect, we're free to be walking, talking, completely imperfect people. Our lives are meant to point to the author, not mimic him. Christ became like us. Our our, our pursuits to become like him, only he can do that. And I'm, I'm totally cool with him doing that, but even that he does in my weakness. In fact, that's where he has room to do it. His strength is perfected in my weakness. But I'm not trying to mimic Jesus. I'm free to be myself because Jesus does the best stuff through me, who I really am. Not some counterfeit version of me. Through me. He does his best stuff with you through the authentic, real you. Now, he will change. He will transform. As, as one scripture says, he will prune. <laughs> he will take away. He will, he, will, he will do something inside of you. But that's his work. And he's faithful to complete it. But I'm telling you this. Right where we are. Our, our story is not finished, but Jesus is writing a beautiful story of his faithfulness in and through your life. So that other people can experience his grace through even your failure and brokenness. I've, I've realized along the way that the best things I have going for me as a person are the things I don't have going for me. I grew up in church and I was sort of groomed to be uh, a minister. I was, I was taken uh, as a project to kind of make a, uh, a, a gregarious, charismatic minister out of me. And I was under the impression that in order to minister to people effectively, you have to be the paragon of virtue that everyone aspires to be. You have to dress better than they do, drive a better car than they do. You have to look better, present yourself better. You can never do anything wrong. If you're on the golf course and you say a cuss word, you need to really you, you need to repent publicly, which I'm a, I might play golf Wednesday, and there will be, trust me, I'm going to tell you right now, there's going to be some cussing. And that's just Larry. Just kidding. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. He never does. But I, I, I had no idea that me uh, demanding people look to me as an example was running in the opposite direction of ministry. Had no idea. That me asking people to look to Jesus, that's ministry. Paul said, I'm the worst person that I know. I'm the least of all disciples. He's making sure that people understand, I'm not the point, but I'm happy to point you to Jesus. I've determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Let's not buy and believe our own press. We are in desperate need of a Savior, and may our lives show and reflect the grace of God to bring us and give us that Savior.